Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. Welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 28, High Risk Breast Cancer Clinic. What does it mean with Jennifer Davis? Personally, after I had my ultrasound done that confirmed that what the mystery masses, there were three mystery masses found on the MRI and the ultrasound had confirmed that they were in fact solid filled not fluid filled, so therefore it was not a cyst. I remember hearing at that moment in time that I'd be referred to the Center for Breast Care because at the time, that's where all of their high-risk patients were seen. And I was considered high-risk. I was high-risk courtesy of the BRCA2 mutation. Since my diagnosis, a high-risk program has also been developed at Memorial Health University in Savannah, Georgia, and we're going to hear more about that today. I am absolutely convinced that obtaining that highly individualized level of care from having been referred to a department specializing in this area that was up-to-date on all the latest research and risk reduction and treatment options I'm convinced, y'all, it hands down saved my life. And today, I want to talk more about what it actually means to be at an increased risk because it's not just limited to genetics alone. It's not just, do you have this BRCA2 mutation? There are other factors that can increase one's risk, and we're going to hear about that today. Dr. William Burak, who we interviewed in episode number 15 about some breast cancer basics, He is the medical director of this newly implemented high-risk program at Memorial. And Jennifer Davis, who we have with us today, she is Memorial Health Survivorship Coordinator, who spearheaded and oversees much of this fairly new high-risk program. Jennifer joins us today to talk about this program, what it entails, who is actually at an elevated risk, what does that actually mean, And then what should people do about it if they are at that elevated risk? And since information is meant to empower us, I am super excited for today's episode. And I'd like to take a moment to introduce today's special guest. Jennifer Davis, or Jen, is a nurse practitioner at Memorial Health University in Savannah, Georgia. Her background is in women's health, and she is currently working on completing the certification for the genetic risk assessment and Jen oversees this new high-risk cancer program. Welcome, Jen. We are so very happy to have you with us today. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Let's start by first talking about what does it mean to be at high risk? Everyone is at risk of breast cancer. One in eight women will um, develop breast cancer in their lifetime. So you can think of everyone as needing to be vigilant about breast cancer, especially at age 40 and over. But really, everyone needs to have breast awareness and be familiar with their breast and check their breast. In addition to that, there are women who are at increased risk and high risk. 
And what I mean by increased risk are women who have either lifestyle factors, breast density factors, or hereditary factors that increase their risk above the level of the population. And then above that, we have women who are at a high-risk category. And these women can come to be high-risk on the same factors. Genetically, there are well-known genetic mutations, the BRCA1, the BRCA2, but there is also several other genetic mutations that will predispose you to breast cancer and hereditary cancer syndromes. These women are at high risk, but you can be at high risk without those syndromes. And I think that's important for the public to know is your family history with or without a genetic mutation identified can raise you into the high risk category. And then there's a variety of lifestyle factors your weight that can tip you into the higher risk categories, your breast density. So there's a lot that goes into determining what your individual risk level is. And I think it's important as we develop the stratification system that more women are aware that your annual mammogram may not be enough for everyone and that it's a good idea for most women to know where they are on the trajectory of risk. Right, because information is meant to empower us. I like to think about it as like a puzzle, and each one of these little risk factors is a little puzzle piece, and it alone doesn't say you are at this risk or mm-hmm. you are at that. It's kind of the collection of them all and piecing together every everything about you to determine what your risk is. I guess that leads me to my next question. How then do you determine if somebody is at high risk? There are various risk assessment models that are used. The one that we used is called the Tyre Cusick Risk Assessment Model. And it's one of the most internationally accepted models. It takes into account not only your family history, which is a big part of it, but it takes into account your breast density, your age administration, your body weight, various factors that can increase your likelihood of breast cancer. So not just the genetic mutation, but all of those little individual puzzle pieces that we were, you were talking about a second ago. Right. There's questions about hormonal therapy, meaning postmenopausal right. estrogen use, age at menopause, age at menstruation. So all of these fact, number of pregnancies, age at pregnancies, all of these factors sort of coalesce and give a risk assessment score. And it's, you know, no risk assessment score currently is 100% accurate, but this is the best that we've been able to come up with. It's not a crystal ball. Not a crystal ball. It's not going to tell you what your future is or is not going to be definitively. It's simply a risk assessment. It's it's letting women know what their overall risk is. Is it what the general population is or is it higher? So it's basically that software program. You, you input all this data and it generates a score. Tell us about the scoring. The, the scoring, less than 15, they look at as being average risk. Then you have your 15 to 19 score. This is lifetime risk score that is intermediate risk. And for these women, it's a good idea if you're in the intermediate risk to talk to your provider. Maybe you should have enhanced imaging. Maybe you should start some lifestyle modification programs. 
And then if you're in that over 20%, regardless of your breast density, it's a good idea to talk to your provider about maybe in addition to having annual mammography that you have MRI to assess your breasts because mammograms are wonderful. They've saved millions of lives and allowed women who would have been diagnosed at a much later stage to have a greater quality of life, easier treatment, and survive. Because they found it early. Because they found it early. But they're not the be-all, end-all for all women. There are women whose breasts are so dense, meaning what we mean by breast density is that the tissue itself is so tightly put together, packed, that the mammogram technology can't see through that dense tissue it's like looking through a thick pair of curtains. Somebody and, told me it was like driving through a snowstorm with the windshield wipers on turbo. You yeah. still can't see anything. You still don't get the the view like you do for women whose breasts are fattier. And it's like looking through a sheer panel of curtains. So for women whose breasts are dense, it's the combination of mammogram because mammograms pick up calcifications better than MRIs, and MRIs pick up tiny masses better. And the combination alternating at six-month intervals is really the best tools we have currently to identify changes in women whose breasts are very hard to see through mammography. Right. It's what the American Cancer Society actually recommends for if you are at a high risk. If you have, as you were saying, you, you get your risk assessment score, and if you're over 20%, that's what is considered high risk. Mm-hmm. And the American Cancer Society recommends if you're over high risk, considering doing that, alternating every six months. But this information is meant to empower you. It's meant to open up that dialogue between you, patient, and your provider to figure out what's in your best interest. Absolutely. And My hope is that every woman at some point is assessed for their risk at an early age so they know how to go forward with their screening and their prevention. Now, there is recommendation that women who come from high-risk families that they get at least, and African-American women, get a baseline screening and risk assessment at age 30. And I think that in the future, if we get better at identifying women that are increased risk or high risk, that it'll just be a, a standard of care that everyone gets a risk stratification early enough to make it meaningful for their life. So that and, they know what their risk is. Yes. So they know what category they fall into, so that therefore they know what questions to ask their, Absolutely. their providers. Yeah, and, and if you are high risk, then that allows you the opportunity when you open up that dialogue with your provider to go, okay, well, am I going to increase surveillance? How does that look alternating Mm -hmm. every six months? What are the risk reduction strategies if that's something that's applicable to me in my case or or whatever else that you may do once you open up that dialogue? And I know for me in my case, that was life-saving. The fact that I found out that I had an elevated risk is what allowed me and afforded me the opportunity to start those alternating Mm -hmm screenings, mammograms, MRIs. And ultimately, it's in doing that that saved my life. So being empowered to know what my risk was, was was key, was ultimately key. So yes, I, I like that idea of in the future, mm-hmm. getting getting us to that point. Let's talk back and circle back to some more of those risk factors. So you had said breast density, 
And of course, if they do genetic testing and if they have any of those predispositions for genetic mutations, you said also that they put into the software program things like their hormone use and when they start menstruation. And then ethnicity and heritage, does that play a role too? Currently, it's just Ashkenazi Jewish heritage that's mentioned because there are known genetic mutations within that population within that population at a a pretty high level it doesn't currently ask for any other ethnicities right and we're at version eight right now so this is you know continuing to, to be refined so what is version is version eight referring to the version of the tire cusack yes. model yes oh that's awesome and now it does include breast density absolutely it includes fatty you can be fatty average, heterogeneously dense, or extremely dense. So based on the level of density, if your breasts are categorized as extremely dense on mammography, then it raises your risk assessment score over even just heterogeneously dense breasts. Because breast density, not only, as you mentioned, can you not see things clearly on a mammogram, Mm -hmm. but it also means that you're at an elevated risk. Correct. So tell us about this new law that we have, Margie's Law. What is that? It's a law that has required all of the facilities that are are doing mammograms to notify women of their risk. And it came about, as it came about in many states, by a breast cancer survivor advocating for the law, for the legislation. We had Margie Singleton, she was a breast cancer patient, who had the really scary experience of, of having a mammogram and it coming clear, and then a few months later, finding a mass in her breast herself, she came in, they did ultrasound, they identified the mass, and then it was still clear on mammogram. So Margie, being an active, strong woman, said, we need to know about this breast density so that we're empowered as women to seek out more enhanced screening in these situations. So thanks to her and her warrior friends, they made it happen through lobbying, through raising their voices. And now Georgia is either the 37th or 38th state to go the direction that all mammograms have to... They have to tell you. Have to tell you the density. Yeah. We had Margie on in a previous episode. And one thing that she mentioned that I think is is crucial in, in reiterating here is that you're not going to know your breast density just by touching it That's or right. feeling it. The only way to be able to discern what your grade is, your ABCD, it's ABCD, right? Mm-hmm. Is the grading. The only way that you're going to know if you have those dense breasts or not is through the actual screening, through the mammogram, right? Right. Um, It takes a breast radiologist to score you based on their expertise. And you've got to get that at least baseline mammogram in order to get the information. So that's another reason that's important to get your mammogram so that you know where you lie on that trajectory of density. Right, which is crucial in being able to open up that conversation even further Mm -hmm. with your provider. If women want to know their lifetime risk, because when we're talking about our risk assessment and we say over 20%, what we're referring to is that overall lifetime risk. What is the probability or your risk of acquiring breast cancer within your lifetime? 
is essentially what that is. So if somebody wants to know what their overall lifetime risk is, what do they do? Who do they call? How do they go about making those first steps? Anyone in the area can contact us here at the High Risk Cancer Prevention and Screening Program at the Anderson Cancer Institute, and we'll be happy to provide a risk assessment. And it's not just for breast cancer. We assess your risk for cancer in general, and we try to provide guidance with lifestyle and other screening interventions, such as your colonoscopies. And we really try to provide a good overall cancer risk assessment here at ACI. So please, if you're interested in this, give us a call and we will um, we'll get you in. And it's a good first step conversation, if nothing else, to know where you stand. I'm glad that you mentioned that. So it's a program that although this podcast is dedicated to helping women with breast cancer, mm-hmm. this program that you guys have at the hospital is for high risk of cancers in general. So it's not exclusive to just breast cancer. It's It's got other cancers that they are assessing as well. That, that's correct. And what we find is a lot of the women who are at high risk for breast cancer will be at high risk for other cancers, colorectal, ovarian. So we really try to provide guidance in all these areas so that we can reduce not only your risk of breast, but your overall cancer risk burden as well. So if people are interested, they can either call directly mm-hmm. or they can also have that conversation with their primary care physician or their, their OBGYN. I know for me, my OBGYN, they had that this pink form to fill out. And the pink form was, asked me a whole bunch of questions about my family history and stuff. And it was to determine, this was to determine whether or not I would be a good candidate for genetic testing. Right. I had a lot of family history for colon cancer. So I thought, oh, maybe I have that gene. We did genetic testing. I was negative for that. Surprise, surprise, positive for the BRCA2 mutation. So having that conversation with my provider, with my OP early on is Mm -hmm. what opened up this whole dialogue and got me to the people that I needed to get to when I needed to get there. So after assessing their risk, they'll get their score. And we kind of talked about that scoring system already their overall lifetime risk. What is your advice for the general population, those that are at average risk? And then what would your advice be for those that are at high risk? For your average risk person, my advice is to continue your screening mammograms and breast awareness as well. And by breast awareness, I mean, noticing changes in your breasts. It's not just lumps and bumps that we need to look for. We need to look for changes in skin, rashes that don't go away. One of the common presentations of inflammatory breast cancer is just a very subtle rash to begin with that doesn't go away. It's not, you know, just the poudre orange that you see in the textbooks. So being aware of changes in your breast, of the texture, if your nipples were not inverted and one of them becomes inverted, you know, that's That's something. new and different to you and your right. body. Bring it up. Things that are new and different, bring it up. Especially if it lasts for more than a couple weeks, definitely bring it up. That's the guidance I would give for the average population. For everyone in all risk trajectories, you know, this fast food lifestyle that we have, this convenience food lifestyle, it's doing nothing for our health. One of the mechanisms that causes all forms of cancer is inflammation. 
And we talk about inflammation and how we can reduce our inflammatory burden within our bodies in the high-risk clinic. And we go into... We'll be prepared. We'll have to give us a 24-hour diet recall when you oh can. Boy. <laughs> um, but we, we use that as a sample of, you know, your overall diet and intake. And, you know, we're not trying to make everyone 125 pounds. What we're trying to encourage is if you need to lose weight, that you start the process. And just starting the process with no particular number in mind, but the act of starting the process, eating more whole foods, fresh foods, and eliminating as much as possible processed foods and fast foods, starting that process will move you towards better health in general and a lower inflammatory burden and a lower cancer risk. So we've heard ever since kindergarten PE class that diet and exercise is important to having a healthy lifestyle, overall healthy lifestyle. So they do, in fact, have a role on your health, right? And then therefore on your on your risk factors as well. I think it's important that we talk about the mechanism behind how bad food and extra weight, exactly how that does contribute to cancer. And I I think I've been pretty effective talking to people because, you know, in in a general sense, we all know it's bad to be overweight, we know. But when you talk about why, it's the adipose tissue that we carry around. This is active tissue hormonally. It secretes hormones that promote tumor growth. So when you have, ex- and it's not just estrogen. Um, a lot of people are aware that excess fat will increase your estrogen load, but it's not just estrogen. There's other hormones that the fat releases and that promote tumor growth and the conditions that come about from excess fat, the type 2 diabetes, the hyperlipidemia, these conditions further promote tumor growth. I think when you understand the underlying physiology of this, it helps you make decisions in the grocery store and it helps you be more motivated to take those few extra steps, walk, swim, when you can envision that getting rid of that fat is kind of cleansing yourself of these tumor-promoting hormones and helping you get into a lower inflammatory condition. So eating healthy and exercising, it's not just about that let's point fingers at you so that you can have this outward semblance of health, but it's actual science of down to the systems within your body and what happens inside. Absolutely. And there's so much research into this area. In our community, Dee Dee Cargill, she's a colon cancer survivor, and she started a a program called Every Step Counts. And it wasn't just for colon cancer survivors. It was for all cancer survivors with the idea that the more you move every day consistently, it reduces your chance of cancer in a general sense, not just one cancer or another cancer, but your cancer risk overall. And she's been a real community pioneer in this. And she was right on with the science. And I've really come to appreciate her efforts. The more I've learned, the more it makes me proud of our community people who've been preaching this for years, you know, that there's real benefits to moving and to eating right. And it's not just as you say, the outward appearance, it's the, the biology at the cell level that's affected. Right. And I think when people latch on to that, that kind of makes all the difference. The more you know, the better you do. 
So now going along with that, Memorial has yoga classes and a dietitian on staff as well. Is that correct? That's correct. And we also have a program called Strength for Survivors, where they work with you on a one-on-one basis to kind of get you back after you've had cancer. And so that's important for people, even if they aren't locally and they're not, they don't have access to the hospital here, let's say they're living in South Dakota or wherever, mm-hmm. they can still have access to exercise and eating healthy mm-hmm. in their own hometown. On the heels of talking about this, I want to, there's a new big buzzword out there called epigenetics. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I was, I studied biology when I was in school and then I start hearing this word and I'm like, dude, what are people talking about? I don't quite understand. So this is, this is my very basic understanding of what epigenetics is. Epi meaning on top and then genetics is the study of your hereditary. So we all have DNA Mm-hmm. And our DNA is basically the blueprint for who we are. It codes for certain traits. And then epigenetics is is recognizing that your DNA is not just that code alone. What happens is if you were to zoom out and imagine that DNA is being like a string, it gets wrapped around yo-yos. Mm-hmm. And those yo-yos are, are called histones. It's basically a protein. And then, so the DNA gets wrapped around these proteins and then it connects to another set of wound up yo-yos with more DNA around another protein. And all of this kind of combines to create a chromosome. So your chromosome is made up of DNA and proteins together. And then what happens, and this is the cool piece that was whoosh over my head, is that it's not just your gene alone that codes for things, but I like to think about it like a house. Okay, so your DNA is the blueprint for your house, but your blueprint for the house doesn't tell you what lights are on. Mm-hmm. Do, are your family room lights on? Are the bedroom lights on? Is it the kitchen? Well, and that's where epigenetics comes into play is because there are certain tags that are can either be on the DNA or on the proteins, and they basically tell genes which ones are on here and which ones are off here. And that's why you can have the DNA inside a skin cell and a blood cell, the DNA is identical, but how those cells look and how they function is completely different. And it all comes down to what lights are on and which ones are off. And that study of that is epigenetics. Did I get that right, basically, in a nutshell? Absolutely. You know, for many years, we've told patients that cancer itself is uncontrolled cell division. We know that certain things, genes or chronic inflammation in the form of cigarette smoke, we know that these things can distort the mechanism that ordinarily halts that cell division. Ordinarily within the cell, there's a mechanism where the cell will divide to a certain point and no longer. And that's what differentiates a cancer cell from a regular cell is that that mechanism is destroyed and a cancer cell has unending replication. So you can think of epigenetics as a positive thing because there's environmental factors and things we take into our body that we're learning more and more about that distort those innate mechanisms. And it can go in a positive or a negative way. So what we're finding is in a negative situation, we're exposed to certain environmental chemicals, and that can turn on DNA to promote cancer. But when we expose ourselves to healthy foods and stress reduction and healthy lifestyle things, that can sort of turn those switches off 
that would have led to cancer. So we have our DNA is not our destiny, is what epigenetics says overall. And I think it's really important, you know, if you are diagnosed with a gene mutation, it doesn't mean 100% that you're going to develop cancer. For some genetic mutations, it's an 80% likelihood, but it's not 100%. And what we're finding is you can be predisposed, but there's a lot that you can do that's under your control, modifiable risk that can kind of switch some of those troubling... Those light switches those off. light switches Turn off. Turn them off. Turn we them off. We don't yeah. need the light on in this room. Turn right. that sucker off. Yeah. I like what you said. DNA is not our destiny. I like that. Sama, say that again. DNA is not our destiny. It it tells us a lot about who we are, but I like this idea of epigenetics because, well, one, I'm a science nerd and I think it's fascinating, <laughs> but even more so, I think it gives us a sense of control over things. Right. Like, because we can make choices that can help say, no, that light switch is going off today. We're not having that one on. Keep it off by continuing to make those good choices. Mm-hmm. And so some of those factors you had already mentioned were diet and exercise What are some other epigenetic risk factors? Well, age, we can't really do anything about because as we age, our DNA is more susceptible to mutations. But medication, and I want to mention something for our high-risk women too, is we call it chemo prevention. And I think it's a bad term because it's a frightening term. But I I call it medication prevention that is available for our higher-risk women if they meet, you know, the high-risk category is in addition to enhanced screening, there are medications that have traditionally been used for breast cancer survivors to to, um, prevent the cancer from coming back that you may be eligible to take and it may be right for you, that will further reduce your risk. So that's another important conversation. We want you to know what your options are. It's not right for every woman who's at high risk to take this medication, but for some women who are really concerned and want to do everything they can to reduce their risk, the medication prevention is a good conversation to have at least with your physician so that you know what's available. But there are side effects with that, so... You gotta like, weigh everything. You gotta weigh everything. But that conversation, knowing that it's an option, I think is an important first step too. Right. So breaking this down basically, people if somebody has a high risk, then there are surveillance options and there are risk reduction options. So right. the surveillance options we talked about before with alternating the screening, there's mammograms, there's MRIs ultrasounds if people need them like mm-hmm. that those again all having that conversation with your provider the risk reduction piece that you were talking about right now is that was one of them what are some other uh, risk reduction things that may be talked about between patient and provider depending on their needs well risk reduction it, it's on a trajectory as well of course overall risk reduction we talk about the diet the lifestyle the weight loss that is risk reduction for everyone Chemo, or as I like to call it, medication prevention, is kind of the next step on that trajectory. And it's a conversation that you have with your provider to determine potential benefits and risk reduction outweigh the side effects of the medication. And is it something that you can commit to? Because it's not you take it for, you know, 10 days like you do an antibiotic. It's for several years, five, sometimes 10 years, you take this medication to reduce your chance of developing breast cancer. And then further along that trajectory is risk reduction 
surgery. And that is a major decision. It's a major cost. It's a major recovery. It's a major decision for yourself as a woman. But risk reduction surgery is right for some women based on their level of fear and based on their risk. It may be the right decision for a number of women. And it's definitely part of the conversation that we have. So risk reduction surgery, like laying that out there, that would be for somebody, for example, who say maybe they have that increased risk. I talked to one woman and she had a 94% overall lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. So that risk reduction surgery was the prophylactic mastectomy, meaning that they remove the breast tissue, they don't have cancer, but they get out ahead of it and remove it to lower their chances. Her 94% chance went down to single digits. So that might be a conversation that some women may have with their provider. But as you said, it's not an answer for everybody across the board. You really need to weigh all of your factors. Absolutely. Um, You know, I have, I've had people who came to me wanting to, you know, as a bridge to getting the risk reduction surgery. And after we talked about it, they're like, well, if I can do these MRIs and I can do enhanced um, surveillance with clinical exams, MRIs combined with mammography, maybe I'll take the medication and watch for a while before I jump to that. To that. To that. And it's a very personal decision. So you need to collect your data, Mm -hmm. get that, be empowered with the information about what your overall risk is, and then have that candid conversation with your provider and then move forward with whatever decision is in your best interest. And And I encourage people not to make a decision on the spot either, to get the information and kind of mull it over for a while. Because if you're in the high risk category, if cancer hasn't been identified, then you don't have to make a decision the day you find out what your options are. Mm-hmm. Kind of take a few weeks, mull it over, think about it, maybe talk to a, a plastic surgeon, talk to a breast surgeon, find out what your options are, and really give it a little bit of time. Um, don't let fear drive you to making a decision that you might otherwise not have made if you would have taken just a little bit of time to do some to do some research yeah yeah I've spoken to um, a few women who they were at an elevated risk and they did not have cancer so that's I mean this is you know you can Mm -hmm. either have cancer and be at high risk or you can be at high risk and not have developed cancer yeah there's kind of both possibilities there The women that I was talking to, they did not have cancer. And one of them said that that afforded her time Mm -hmm. to be able to do that digging and that research to be able to decide whether or not that was a surgery she was willing to do or not. Overall, that's one of the most important things I think that this program provides. It gives information to women at an earlier stage where they can make decisions for their health going forward and not be under the gun. Right. I think that's one of the best benefits of our program overall. Yeah, absolutely. Because as soon as I found out I had cancer, I was like, it's getting out of me. Cancer's got got to go. But if you are empowered with knowing what your overall risk is, and then you know what all the increased surveillances are, all the risk reductions, then you can really weigh what works best for you. Tell us about what genetic counseling is and who may benefit from going to that. A lot of people who do not end up getting genetic testing benefit from genetic counseling. I think it's a really informative 
information session. If you have a family history that you're concerned about, that you've always wanted to know, well, how serious is this? Talking with a genetic counselor is beneficial for most everyone in that situation. What it involves is a very detailed conversation. The genetic counselor will try to get as much information about your, they call it your pedigree. And what that means is three or four, five, how much information you have about your family history, people who've developed cancer, and not just cancer, but other um, genetic conditions, other health conditions at the age that they develop this. And genetic counselor will look through all of that very carefully and say, I think you need testing or I don't see from what you've told me that there is a hereditary syndrome that looks like it's in your family. But if your genetic counselor reviews your family history and thinks that you need genetic testing, there's a variety of genes now that they can test for. When it first started out, there were just a few. Most people are familiar with BRCA1 and BRCA2, but there are over 25 genes now that can be tested for. And this is particularly helpful for people who may have colon cancer in their family, pancreatic cancer, melanoma, just to say, what is this? There's something amok here in addition to breast cancer. So I think for people that have that nagging concern that something's not right in their family history, that they see not only breast cancer, but be aware of all the different cancers. If you see multiple generations having cancer, then a conversation with a genetic counselor may be a good avenue. Right. And even if you have that, the genetic testing done. So for me, for example, I had the genetic testing done and I'm negative for the colon cancer gene, gene mutation. I always say gene. I'm negative for right. that mutation, and I'm, but I'm positive for, for the BRCA2. Well, putting breast cancer aside for the second, that doesn't mean that I should not be still continue to be proactive for the colon cancer because the family history is still there. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that they'll take into account is not just what mm-hmm. does the DNA mutation says, but your whole... As you said, that pedigree, they collect all of that data about your family history. And I think it's critical that we note that we'll have families, they'll have five, six people in several generations have colon cancer or breast cancer. And then when we do the genetic testing, they don't test positive for any known mutations that cause cancer. And what that tells us is our science is at a point that we've identified lots of genes that we know cause cancer. But when you see that in families, what that tells me as a nurse, as a nurse practitioner, is there's a gene there somewhere that, that we, we, haven't, we haven't found. Right. And, and if you see that in your family, then I think it's important that you do try to enhance your colon health, enhance your screening, get your screening colonoscopies, even if the gene doesn't say you're at high risk, your history does, your family history does, exactly. and treat it like that. Exactly, you got you got to weigh it all. And even so, I wanna I wanna put the plug in this as well. We're talking about today people that are at an elevated risk, a high risk. But I want to make sure that our listeners also understand that anybody can get breast cancer Absolutely. as well. It's one in eight. One in eight, yes. One in eight. And that one in eight does not have to be somebody that has 
a genetic mutation or a family history, or maybe they were at average risk, which is why you need to be proactive. I can't tell you the times that I've sat in the discussion room, we call it the discussion room, when someone's diagnosed with breast cancer, and they say, well, there's nobody in my family has had this. Why do I, why did this happen? And we don't have an answer for that. But what we do know is that really the majority of cases don't have a family history. It can happen to anyone. So that's why vigilance, that's everyone needs to be vigilant. Right. Is a survivor that I interviewed once before, she put it quite well. She said, you need to know your own geography. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so... For those that are local and they're concerned about, okay, well, I want to know this information. I want to know my risk. They can contact the Anderson Cancer Institute directly. They can talk to their their primary care or their OBGYN or, or whatever. What if they're not local and they want to know what their risk is? What would be the first step that maybe they should consider doing? If you're not local, I think the first step would be to talk to your OBGYN. Often they are, if they're not able to do the risk assessment, they're able to point you in the direction locally of someone who can. There is a nationwide shortage of genetic counselors. So often in more remote areas, the OBGYNs can do a level of risk assessment and then connect you with even telehealth genetic counselors, which are invaluable in rural areas. Yeah, telehealth is a big is a big thing nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's just making the accessibility to care that much more feasible. What would you like primary care physicians or any other key health provider to know about either identifying high-risk patients and or maybe even this particular program? I would like for primary care providers in the area to, when they're talking to their patients and they notice a um, family history of cancer to kind of, you know, look into that a little bit more deeply and then to feel free to send the patients our way for the risk assessment. And we will provide great communication back so that if you send them to us, we make the recommendations that you will get the information back as to what their risk assessment score is, because that will help as primary care providers, that will help you better direct their care and their screenings going forward. Awesome. Now, I like to end with my all-time favorite question because this is the whole reason why I have been putting together these podcasts and I ask everybody, what would you like women who are diagnosed either today or tomorrow to walk away from this podcast knowing? I think it's important for women to know that even if you are diagnosed, it's not the end of the road and that there's a wealth of treatment and life ahead of you. And women today have a 95% chance of being alive and well in five years after diagnosis if it's caught early. So overall, I think what I want women to know as cancer survivors is to encourage others going forward to get their screening and their surveillance underway As early as recommended for some, that's 40. For the majority, it's at age 40. But for others, it starts much earlier. And to advocate that women speak up if they notice something and not be silent on symptoms. I like that. Speak up. Be your number one advocate. Absolutely. And know that it doesn't have to be a death sentence. There's lots of good treatment out there. Mm -hmm. And you have a team, not just a doctor. You have a team of doctors there to help you. 
And more than a team of doctors, you have an army of women who've been there before and who are willing and eager to support you on your journey. Exactly. Together we weather the storm. You don't have to do it alone. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to all y'all at home listening. I look forward to speaking with you guys again next week. Until then, remember, together we weather the storm. You are never alone.